What is up? I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, where music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, and other interesting human beings dive deep into the story beyond the surface. We are a completely independent platform, and there are a few ways in which you can support this podcast. Number one, you can subscribe, leave a review, and rate us on the iTunes store. This helps us appear higher in searches, which means more people will find out about these conversations. Number two, you can tell a friend, write a blog post, and tag us on social media. I promise we will get back to you. And number three, you can slide us some dollar bills with the support link in the description of this podcast. All production, equipment, and travel expenses are paid out of pocket, and a few bucks does go a long way. This episode is brought to you by The Aux. The Aux is an email newsletter bringing you the five coolest things that we discover at Augsoro each week. Just last week, we explored what microdosing psychedelics can do for the human psyche, the pitfalls of building a billion-dollar company, and Patrick Dempsey's thoughts on meditation. If you're ready to take your cool to the next level, at least our version of cool, you can subscribe to The Aux by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting auxoro.com slash The Aux. That's A-U-X. This time... We sat down with Andy Newen, the owner and founder of Afters Ice Cream, Groundhouse Burger, Pigpen Delicacy, and many other top-notch food establishments on the West Coast. As a lifetime creative entrepreneur, Andy has grown powerhouse ventures from scratch in real estate, fashion, and now food. He is a master of putting the pieces together, getting the most out of his teams, and positioning his brand to build hype and deliver high-value products. For Andy, the customer experience and story behind the brand are inseparable from the product. In this conversation, Andy discusses his passion for dance, bringing his streetwear mentality to the food business, how Afters Ice Cream changed the game, dropping out of school, and more. Without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Andy Newen. Thank you for taking the time to sit down on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I know you have a lot going on and it looks like you are a relatively new father. So congratulations. Thank you very much. And I forgot, I um, appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, of course. I think a a good place to start, as I was doing research and, and listening to some interviews with yourself, and there are a lot of them, I saw that one of the the main through lines of your childhood and and teenage years is dance especially in in high school yeah and a lot of the interviews that I was listening to it kind of got glossed over but I thought that was really interesting because not a lot of people have the the confidence or the the focus on something like that in high school and especially not the type of guys that I was hanging out with because I was I was heavily in the athlete scene. And even if I was uh, interested in dance, I, I probably would have gotten made fun of for for doing it. Yeah. Ironically, like I'm very into dance videos now. And, and I think it's one of the coolest things in the world. How did dance come into your life at that point? I think, you know, growing up in the community I was in and seeing the generation before me, like we'd, we'd go out to like the the, the 
private clubs or the house parties and you'd see people like battling each other and you're like dude that is sick like like you know the spotlight is like all on you and it's like their time to shine you see them like doing these crazy things and i'm like whoa that's that's wild like i at one point yeah. I, I thought I, was, I could never do that and then you know, I just, I I, I think I, I just tried it once and I was in that circle and I felt, you know, I felt this rush and I was like, whoa. And this was back in high school, right? Back in high school. That's when I first tried it, like I was a freshman. What else was going on in your life at this time, but kind of like in your friend group or social activities, things like that? Freshman year, freshman year was like a rough time for me just because I was on probation at the time because I got arrested the year before. I was doing poorly in school trying to sneak out to go hang out with my cousin, go to parties, and getting acclimated, you know, to that, to growing, being you know, 14 years old, you know, being high school for the first time, trying to be cool, trying to hang out, you know, with my friends, breaking the rules, you know, so I think these, a lot of these things are just soaking everything in because it's all so new to me at the time. How did you first get into, or, or before I even get into the, the entrepreneur aspect of your life, are, are there any memories or, or standout times where you were being a troublemaker or, you know, getting into bullshit that you weren't supposed to, like, like we all did myself included in high school and anything that you look back on it now and you're like, wow, like, I can't believe I did that. Or that, that was a standout troublemaking experience. I think there, there was like so much just because of the, the, my friends I, I hung out with, like we weren't malicious. We we're, were like, we we're not like gangsters where we we're trying to hurt people. But I think we we're always like, super mischievous where whether it was grouping up to go help our friends shoplift for something at the mall or you know, trying to go to a party and, and hit up girls or it's just so much you know when especially when you're that young and you're just trying to hang out with your friends and be a part of what's going on it's a big accumulation of all those things i don't know if you experienced this but so i'm 25 and i've been out of college for a couple of years but looking back on middle school and high school, I kind of thought that teachers were really bad at differentiating who are the real troublemakers, like kids that are causing harm to people and, you know, trying to be a detriment to other students and kids that were maybe, you know, not following the rules or causing trouble in more, I guess more exploratory ways rather than like trying to, to harm people. And, but all of those, a lot of those kids and sometimes myself and my friends included would get grouped in with the really malicious kids just because it was kind of like a periphery, a tangential thing. Like we're hanging out with them or, or we're doing, getting caught up in similar situations. So we all must be malicious. And for whatever reason, I thought that adults were not great at recognizing, you know, this kid, is trying to do something that might be cool, or maybe if you put him on a different track, or he paid attention to something else, like that energy that he's putting in would be really productive. And then this kid is just like a complete fuck up. <laughs> like, like he's not doing he's not doing anything of value. I think um, a lot of the teachers in in that generation, you know, to pick their career, they weren't you know they weren't the, the bad kids, they weren't the troublemakers, or or not just the bad kids, the the misunderstood ones. Uh, and I think that's why they. It's so difficult for them to recognize it, or or maybe they sat in, in the class with those type of kids, and you know when whoever grew up, they you know went a different path, and then that you know, they ended up as a teacher. Yeah, it's true. As a as a teacher, I guess it would be hard to 
understand, or maybe since you're so far removed from the situation, it kind of all looks all looks the same to you. Yeah, but it's pretty funny. You know, even when I come back to visit the high school now, and you know, some of the teachers that are still there, if it's you know, because I've been out of high school for seventeen, almost seventeen, eighteen years now, and I come back and I talk to them, and it's it's hilarious. What do they say to you, some of the teachers? Because I'm sure they couldn't imagine where you're going to be. Of course not. It's not they. They're like shocked. They're like you know. They're like congratulations and everything. I couldn't believe this. You know, you're doing amazing now. You're helping the community. You know, that's like he's like, congrats on the path that you took. You know, things happen for a reason. Yeah, and it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome to see. That reminds me. So I was actually just listening to another podcast with the founder of Kith, Ronnie Feig. I was playing out his name. Yeah, Ronnie. He's the man. And. Yeah, he is. I would love to to meet him someday, especially since he's he's local in in New York. But he was talking about how his teachers kind of had this really, you know, downwards view of him where he wasn't going to make anything of himself and they kind of said things to him that signaled that he wasn't actually going to do anything with his life. Like he was, it was that was it. Like he was going to be a fuck up and that was going to be it forever. And then he actually got an order from a teacher wow. that told him that he wasn't going to amount to anything, basically saying, you know, things that a teacher shouldn't say to a kid. And he didn't really get into detail, but he saw that the order was under her name and she's like 50, 60 something. So he assumed it was for her son yeah. and he delivered the sneakers to the door. Really? And yeah, she, she opened the door and was like, holy shit, like wow. it's Ronnie from from school and and he said she was kind of the same it wasn't this like yeah like last super wow moment like yeah. oh my god i was i was wrong which he he i don't think he was doing it for that he kind of yeah. just wanted her to know that you know he made something of himself and that yeah. that, that was cool for kind of reminded me what you were saying in that lane i've had a very similar situation when i was in college one of my last classes that i ever took in, in college he told me the same thing the teacher did yeah, the professor. Yeah, for my geography, uh, for in college, told me, yeah, because I, I did, a, I copied a, a map, like a color, a coloring map, and then yeah, told me, oh, you're gonna amount to nothing. You're not gonna amount to nothing. I'm gonna report you. I was like, are you serious? Like, really? Like, this is over coloring. That's crazy. <laughs> and then he brought his kids into after's ice cream, and, and then hilarious, right? Oh man, you dumped a gallon of ice cream on his head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you're getting nothing now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let your kids watch this. Let, let your kids know who their father is. <laughs> so going back to you getting kicked out in high school, freshman year. Yep. What was your thought process at that point? Because you're kind of removed from, you're removed from the, the physical location of the high school, which is yeah. where everything's going on, all the social scene, everyone's hanging out before and after school. What were you thinking? What kind of headspace were you in? Yeah, the beginning was the worst because how many kids actually get kicked out of school? You know, the number is so low, you know, so you're like, dude, I'm like the dumbest. I got to be the dumbest of the dumb to get kicked out. You know what I mean? Like the worst of the worst. Like, And that's what you, that's the same mindset your parents have at the time. Like, how, how could this happen? They're like, how are you, how did you get kicked out of school? How are you the dumbest out of the entire yeah. school? Like, so for this to happen, it's, um, it was a tough, tough, tough time because, you know, because they kept digging that to my head. They're like, you're so stupid. And, you know, and they were trying to figure out like any way to get me into a different school. They were trying to send me to private school. But, you know, once you get kicked out, you can't, 
you can't really do much. Like you have to go through that that process unless they move me to another state or something. Yeah, you're stigmatized basically. Yeah, because you're like, okay, where'd you come from? Well, he just got kicked out of school. That's why we're trying to get rid of him here. They're like, no, we don't want him. I was like, all right, well, I just got to stick this out. And, you know, I guess being at home, you know, you're at home that long, you know, it's kind of like you're in prison. You know, you're, I'm kind of like by myself and, and I'm just trying to figure things out. And I start developing this mindset of, you know, I need to, I need to break out of what I was before. Don't worry about these bullies because they're not here anymore because you're at home. Uh, don't worry about what people think of you because you're by yourself. And where do you want to take yourself in life? And I, you know, I had to really dig deep and figure out you know, who who I really was. And instead of just daydreaming of who I wanted to be, like put it out and make it real. Were there any conversations or any any sort of content that you were looking at at the time that was influencing you to have that mindset? Because so many kids, especially at that age, they just continue to mind fuck themselves and keep going down that path and you know there there are a lot of people that never recover and then they kind of feed into that mentality that they're never going to make it and then they never do was there any anything you were doing at home looking at any videos or or people books things like that that kind of introduced you to that mindset i don't think we even had anything at that time that existed like that there were no you know there were no podcasts or people that you listen to watching tv um, I think what few things that, that helped do it, you know, I listened to a lot of music and that really changed a lot of my identity of, you know, if of learning about hip hop culture and, and urban culture. And that really influenced, especially my style and my confidence of how I came when I came back, you could see my identity is completely shifted. And then, you know, I lived across the street from my, the old high school that I went to. So, you know, sometimes after school, I would sneak in to hang out with people. And just seeing <laughs> you're sneaking into I'm school, sneaking back into school, which is weird. Yeah, you're friend. probably the only, only person to ever try to sneak back into school. Everyone else is cutting class, I know, trying anything to get out, and you're just like, how, "How the fuck can I get back inside?" Exactly. And you know, just get behind those gates and just hanging out with my friends, and you know, without the principal out there, then you know, I'm hanging out, chilling, and I'm just like, "Dude, I, I want to be back in the setting. You know, I want to be around people again." You know, it's just like you're if you're in prison, you're like locked in confinement. You're like, "Dude, I want to." I need to get out yeah, and exactly. be around people again, and I, I guess that's how I felt. And you know, I need to, I needed to make, I needed to shift. I need to work, work hard to get back in. So, w- when you went back to school, what year was that? Was it you missed one year and then came back junior year? I missed one, one full year, and yeah, and then they barely let me back in my junior year. They did not want to let me back in. I was like begging, I was like pleading, I was like, please, please let me back. And she's like, I don't think you're gonna make it. It sounds like why? I didn't even. Those grades, it wasn't like I did anything really bad. Like, please give me this chance. Like, I'll make it. I'll make it work. And then, is that when you kind of you flipped the switch junior year and were talking to more people and and dancing things like that, becoming more social? I became super social the next two years. You know, I became. You could see the way I dressed and looked. You know, I was like, I came back as like, I missed as a freshman. You're already like invisible, right? I missed the whole sophomore year, so. I still don't exist in that school. So I come back as a junior. I'm like the new kid. And, you know, I'm like the new kid around. So everyone sees me like the new cool guy around. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, now I can shape my identity. Most of the gangsters, most of the older gangsters either graduated or got kicked out already. So I had this chance to just like rebuild like who I really am. I got this like confidence through like music, the way, you know, the way I dress, the way I talk and participate, just participating in everything and still coming up a mindset of like, being relatable and being cool with everyone. And I think that's what 
things I carry with me to like to this day that that's helped me. I mean, I commend you for flipping the switch that early. I think it takes most people a while to come out of their shell if they ever do. I was I was super shy when I was younger. I still consider myself an introvert in many ways, but it took me until at least sophomore, junior year in college to kind of just not give a fuck what anyone thinks. And I'm still working on that every day. It's like a process of kind of battling that voice in your head where you have an idea or you want to go up and talk to someone or you want to put things in motion. And then the voice says, you know, you're a fucking idiot or this is never going to work. You know, she's (laughs) going to turn you down. Like, yeah, anxiety. Exactly. So I'm constantly battling that every day. But it, it took me a while, probably until 20, 21 years old, where I was like, I need to do something or else I'm just going to go through life and and not do what I love to do. I was also at the point too where I was playing baseball all through college. And so some of the older guys graduated above me and then they came back to school and they were all fucking miserable because they were working accounting and finance jobs. And Yikes. I would ask them like, what... You know how's life, and and they'd be out in the real world, real world for a year or two, okay. and they say they fucking hated it. And I'm like, yeah. I need to, I need to uh, do find something so I'm not in the same boat. Got it. It's crazy, right? It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I feel like the the world is not. It's built to set you up to follow a certain path, so it makes sense that you have to break through those anxieties to kind of reach a, a deeper level within yourself kind of find that purpose. Yeah, I agree. So I was also reading that you were not reading. I, I was listening to some other podcasts. You, you dropped out of college and did real estate appraisal for a couple of years, which could be a whole nother podcast, it sounds like. Yeah. But, but during that time, you're splitting an office with a friend who was designing clothes right. for, for a completely separate company. Yep. And you started to become more interested in the clothes than the real estate. Mm-hmm. What was it that your friend was doing around the office that you were splitting? It sounded like, you know, one side was clothes, one side was real estate. And, yeah, and he was kind of grabbing your attention. What what was going on that caused you to drift away from the real estate game? The room was obviously tiny. You know, we were in the space was like 250 square feet, I think. No, no more than 400 for sure. So it was a tiny box that we were in. The only reason we got the space was, you know, he suggested he he couldn't afford uh, his office himself. So he said, okay, you know, this room, I found this room for cheap. Do you guys want to split the room? So we just, you know, that's why we split the, we worked in half, you know, we, we, we just worked in a room together and we did you know each of our things. The reason why I was so intrigued by what he was doing was, as I mentioned, when I was in high school, I, you know, I was the kid that loved hip hop. You know, I loved dressing up. I spent all my money on clothes. I was my high school seniors best dressed at my high school. So you could see you that. You got best dressed in high school. Yeah, nice. that's my senior year. Congratulations. So like those things, you can tell like why I was so stuck and, and kept, I guess I was so stuck and, and fascinated with what he was doing. I kept paying attention to to the apparel side. So that's why you know, I was like, Dude, I don't know anything about real estate. I don't really care about this. Like, it's, I'm doing it just because yeah, I have my own company, but. I, I still, I practically don't even understand what I'm doing. Like, you know, I don't really know what my, my, my role here, you know, what role I'm doing in here is because I don't even enjoy it. But when it came to fashion, even though I was just helping him, you know, with like events and setting up and pay, and talking to him about, talking to him about design, I was like, this is, this is me, you know, this is like the creative world. This is where I want to be in. So real estate, it was kind of like 
you were you were making money. You you knew exactly what you had to do, but you felt boxed off creatively somewhat. And then, yeah, because I you know I, I was I, I didn't grow up being like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in this like suit. I'm gonna dress up in a suit and go you know measure houses and, and measure the value of people's homes. And you know, that I, that wasn't one of my dreams growing up. But I, I knew I knew apparel, you know, I was like, this is, you know, I, I was going to stores, I was meticulously shopping for my outfits, you know, like, what am I going to wear to, to go dance today? What am I going to go wear to impress this girl? You know, those are the, those are more of things that I was interested in. So flash forward, you start the clothing company, I Am King, which stands for Imaginary Kingdom. Yep. What were some of the steps or, or moments that led up to creating the brand of I Am King and putting into motion beyond just having the idea to, to start your own design thing? I think I went back to my community college for one class, which was like a fashion, like an intro, intro to fashion class. I was like, okay, I'm going to go learn this whole fashion industry. I'm going to go to the trade shows. I'm going to take classes. I'm going to go recruit. I'm going to go through, recruit the best designers out there. You know, I'm going to go Google and find someone. So I, you know, I, went back to, I went back to school and I actually met a guy working at a clothing store in the mall. And then I, I recruited him to be my sales guy. And he actually helped find us our designer that ended up sticking with us our, our entire time. And then, you know, I just, yeah, I just rallied up a bunch of my friends, you know, to help out. I was like, Hey, I need help in this. Can you help out with shipping? Can you help out with, you know, packing t-shirts? Can you help me with marketing? And, you know, we just kind of built our team and, and sold our friends on this dream that we didn't even understand at the, at the time yet. Going back to picking the class in community college, the, the fashion design class to learn more about it, I think that maybe our education system should be modeled more in the sense where you're having experiences and figuring out what to do. And then you're choosing classes that are benefiting that vision, what, what you want to build and what you want to become rather than taking this plethora of classes of things that you know, you may be interested in, may not be interested in. You're spending so much money for a lot of people while you're making those decisions and, and figuring it out. So I like the fact that you recognized what you had to learn and, and saw the opportunity to handpick a class, whether or not you're doing it for a, a degree or not, or uh, a future job. You're just picking it just to learn because you needed that to do what you're going to do. Yep. I've been, I, and I, once I took the class, I was like, okay, they were, they're not teaching me Really, anything that I need to, I don't know already, so I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how how I wish uh, more of college was for me. I'm just like yeah. remembering so many unuseful things that are maybe still in the back of my mind, maybe not. But I I was kind of on a whole different path because I came into school wanting to be a professional baseball player after three years and just get out. And so I was taking business courses as sort of a, a backup, worst case scenario. Something happens, at least I have a degree. And then I had two elbow surgeries, wasn't a great baseball player after that. And, and so I was, kind of, I was kind of on autopilot in school for three, four years. And then my last year kind of hit me where I, I was thinking, you know, why did I... Why did I come to college in the first place? I, th I think there are a lot of benefits of college. I think a lot more people go to college than they should. I, I don't think as many people need to go to college as currently do right now. And, and it's so expensive too. But it kind of forced me 
if they are, I think I think the issue, you know, people complain a lot about it. I think they, if they are, they're not select. They're just selecting the easiest way out instead of selecting what works, what's or, sele- or figuring out what's going to work for them, or figuring out what they really want to do. Yeah, and there's no no class teaches you how to make money. Like they, they'll teach you the how to do a balance sheet, how to do a cost benefit analysis, how, a lot of things with accounting and finance and different equations and keeping track of money, but there's no one that there are no class that at least in my experience said, all right, if you have an idea and you're building it from the ground up, this is how you get people to exchange their money and their time for a product or a service. And these are the foundations of being an entrepreneur and, and starting a business. There there was really nothing experiential like that in college. I agree because I took those classes. I took the same business classes to try to figure it out too. When I was when I was going to school. Okay, I know how to keep track of sales and and revenue and costs. Now, how do I get people to walk into my store? Like, how, how do you get a human being to walk into your store? Right, yeah, or how do you do paperwork on getting an LLC or whatever you need to start up to to build? They don't teach any of that either. And I was like clueless through that whole process. Flash forward seven years at I am King, and you, you have over a thousand stores, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're over. Yeah, a thousand stores during that time at I am King. What were the main skill sets that you were bringing in the table, bringing to the table? Excuse me, in the day to day, what what was most of your attention focused on through that time period? It shifted a lot during the the you know apparel days. Obviously, I ran as the CEO and creator, and early on, I was running as a creative director during I am King. What I learned was, you know, I was putting teams together. I was pairing people up and deciding what roles they were going to play. Because, you know, not early on, we, didn't, everyone, we really didn't know what we were good at or what we knew or what to do. But we we're doing everything. I was learning the shipping side. We we're learning the accounting side. We learned marketing. You know, we learned guerrilla marketing during the recession. We learned how to do sales during a recession. We learned how to build websites. I learned about blogging right, and building and storytelling writing on our I'm King website every single day. I learned on how to build a community of, of customers and working with other people. So building the experience, it sounds like, as well as just the product, kind of creating something that people can latch on to beyond just the, the physical merchandise. Right. Since you've been in the, the streetwear game, how or what do you think are some of the defining characteristics that separate the great streetwear companies from the good streetwear companies or, or ones that never go anywhere? I think the ones that that really pass through time are ones that had a lot of experience in the industry, not just what, with their brand, but prior experience of being within like, you know, there are people that were in the industry for skate before or in the industry for music or in the industry with networking. I think you need to be like if you look at all the big guys now, they've all had time in the industry. You know, they didn't just pop out. Of, they didn't just pop out of nowhere. Like you don't really see people that pop out of nowhere in that industry. Like you really have to have, get the stamp of approval from others to be in that streetwear industry. And I think just understanding apparel and understanding lifestyle and and respecting the history of streetwear and and also how to press it forward. I think those are the guys that last long, the guys that understand storytelling and 
like the Bobby Bobby Hundreds. You see what he's done with storytelling. Like he he he's amazing at it, and he really he really helped take the industry to different places. So afters ice cream, I know you started afters. It sounded like a year, maybe about a year, and a, for about a year and a half. Excuse me, you were still running I Am King while you had afters. So about seven years after the launch of I Am King, you started afters. Yeah, about yeah, about that that mixed time frame. Yeah, how did ice cream specifically present itself as the entry point for food? Because there's there's so many options that you could have chosen. What was it about ice cream? I think that's the one that sparked so much like joy to people. Like that you notice when you go out, or, or every time you go eat somewhere, that's the thing you think about like right after. And just when I was, I was just when I was traveling, just seeing, you know, in in. Like let's, let's give an example. Like being in New York, you have a China that Chinatown ice cream store, a little a little store. Like I remember going in there, and I saw those crazy flavors of like almond cookie and Thai tea and green tea, and I've never seen you know at that time I've never seen flavors like that before. It was like a big shock to me. I was like you know I didn't know you could even make these things into ice cream, and you know from there you know I kept seeing different ice cream stores everywhere else and studying it. And I was like, dude, I could do this. I could come up with my own list of flavors, but also give it my own flair and style to it. Before you started, you actually opened the door at Afters. You were going around to all of these different ice cream places and analyzing the flavors, looking at the setup, like what people were doing. I was eating every single ice cream store everywhere I went. If you talk about Southern California ice cream stores, like at that time, I probably ate at every single one. <laughs> that's it's a like, that's yeah, a good way to spend uh, research and development. Yeah, we did R and D like everywhere, just because I wanted to know who's the best. Yeah, the difference between each ones and what's the process. And you know, my friends that had uh, they had an ice cream store down the street, and I was asking them questions about handbooks and their process and how they streamlined everything. And it, those are things we learned. You know, I had to learn along the way. Yeah, I, I feel like the guerrilla warfare of of learning your industry, kind of being on the ground and, and talking to people can get lost a little bit today, especially, you know, people that are around 24, 25. Like I had Facebook since ninth, 10th grade. And now kids that are being born today, they have the internet, they're in a whole entire lives. And the face-to-face interaction and being on the ground, seeing customers' faces, how they react, actually experiencing a product, you have so many options online where it's easy to think you can just research everything from your sofa and your shorts on, on a laptop and find out everything you need to know, which is a blessing and a curse. Right. Because it's it's one thing to compile information, but it's another thing to actually see it in action. And it's in, in podcasting, it kind of gets easy to think that way where I'm having all these conversations with people and all I need to do is do the research. And I don't actually have to like go out and tell people about my podcast or like spread it that way. So I like that you were actually going out there and, and experiencing as much as possible. That's a big conversation with me and my friends uh, recently. And I, I was going to plan a write-up about exactly that. I think face-to-face interactions are what the new generation is lacking. They think it's easy just to DM and ask a question and they don't understand the process of how to build a relationship. And I think from my generation that we, you know, we lived in both spaces. So we understand like, hey, face to face is like everything that that can that can take your your relationship with someone to a next level. And, and that can really help blossom what you're a part of at that time. 
Have you ever read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? I've seen that book. It's on my list to purchase. So I have not read, I have not read that yet. I'm actually reading it right now. So it's, it's kind of really perfect timing that we're, we're talking about this. One of the things in the book that Dale Carnegie writes about is that he keeps an engagement journal, which is basically the conversations that you have or didn't have with people throughout the day. So I, I created a Google Doc. And this is all within the past couple of weeks. And then if I have an interaction with someone that stands out, it's more than just the superficial, how are you? How are you doing? Something like that. I'll write down, I'll try to write down, you know, what was good about it. Or if I miss an opportunity, if someone walked past me, if, you know, I didn't walk up to say hi to a girl at a bar or like I, I missed an opportunity to have an in-depth conversation because I was feeling too anxious or something like that. I'll write that down too. And when you look back at it, it kind of forces you to see like, damn, like I should have, I should have said something or, or it was a good thing that I said something to that person. That's pretty interesting. That's pretty smart too. Yeah. The first store that you opened for afters was run at first by a 65 year old guy. Yep. That is the opposite vision of what I have when I envision afters ice cream as like a 65 year old mom and pop shop. What about that store and that situation made it apparent to you that you could create something and like there was a space to do something there? We knew Colonel Sanders wasn't running it correctly, so we needed to jump in. Yeah. <laughs> <That'd be laughs> uh, no. if his name is actually Sanders. <laughs> uh, he, he does look like he does have that look. So if you see him, you'll, you'll, you'd laugh. I'll be looking out for uh, his picture on his shirt when you do a Colonel Sanders collab. <laughs> we need to. Uh, you guys would love it. I think in that time frame of finding his space, just because we, you know, we were, we were working out literally across the street at the gym. That's that's the gym we worked out at, and. You know, that we lived in the area and we knew the city and the store was really struggling. Like it was open randomly, which is so funny. We just kept talking to him and selling him on our, on our dream that he didn't understand. But something about the way we talked and the way we presented ourselves and our, I guess our track record on our, our history of business is what kept him going because, you know, his wife didn't want him to work anymore. She's like, dude, just get rid of it. Let the, let, let these boys just like <laughs> let them so, buy and let them do it themselves. You know, so it was a like, passion project for him. It was, you know, he, he still wanted, you know, he's something inside of him, like still wanted him to do it. It wanted him to keep going, but you know, he's 60, you know, like you say, 60 at the time he was 64 and it was getting ready in time to retire, but something that gave him a new, uh, you know, we, we, kept, we came in there, gave him some fire for, his second chance at, at doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And well, he knew how to make the ice cream and we didn't. So we were like, all right, we need to keep this guy on board. We, need, we can't get rid of him. He's an, he's an ice cream making expert. How did you make him see the fire or feel the fire? Because it's one, it's one thing to have the vision for yourself and see it, but it's another thing to make someone else want to be a part of it. What, what kind of things were you saying or any, any moments? You know, when we send him the list of flavors to like we need to develop, you know, we're creating these crazy flavors that he's never even tasted before. I think those are things that that really like went and set him off, you know, that made him like excited. I, I know he went when he went to the grocery store to pick up ingredients, he'd have the people at the baggage, like, why are you buying these ingredients? They're like, oh, he's going to make, I'm going to make this flavor. And they're, you know, they get excited. So he started being like, oh, wow, if they're getting excited, you know, I, I might, I might be onto something. So the the people at the grocery store get the first look at what's coming to after his ice cream. Pretty much that they don't understand what's going on, but he's talking about these. Be like, yo, they're they're buying some 
blue shit and some, yeah. some cookie dough. <laughs> exactly. I don't know what's coming, but they're putting uh spies, competitive spies, competitors are hiding in the grocery store looking out for <laughs> right. what flavors, what flavor is exactly. going to be next. Yeah, you can see how the blue ice cream, everyone, that's like a normal thing now, like everywhere, you know, like it's crazy that everyone has blue ice cream now. I've never experienced a time in New York City where ice cream wasn't cool because I, I recently moved in at the top of this year. But I remember when I was back, I, I grew up about 45 minutes away from NYC in Plainview, Long Island, and there was no cool Instagrammable ice cream when I was in high school and college, it was just, you know, there's this place called TCBY and Cold Stone. And that was basically it. And no one was hanging out there. Like it was just like, whatever, we're going to go get ice cream here. But then as I'm, as I'm looking through all the, the pictures and, and everything you guys have and, and the, the time that it came around in 2013, 2014, before like all the other places started to pop up in NYC, it's like really cool to get a feel for for that aesthetic. And it, it makes sense after looking at the, the store and the, and the aesthetic and the actual products and, and some of the collabs that you guys are doing, I could definitely see the influence of streetwear in the, in afters. And yeah, definitely. It was, he- it was heavy. It was heavy in how we grew up and how we added all those elements of what we knew to, to that project. So you have, you have this basically blank slate of a store with the guy who was running it, Colonel Sanders. Yep. <laughs> what, what were some of the main changes that you knew you wanted to immediately make right away to the to the store, the product, the the vibe? We knew that you know the, the look of the store was already like it was like this nasty. You know when you go in those seventies houses and it has that nasty weird paint coated color, and we're like, all right, we need to flip this up right now. And he had like pictures yeah, like, of the wall, and, like someone definitely filmed a porno in here. Once, yeah, it looks, like that. It looks super. <laughs> this looks super dated and look crazy. And I was like, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna paint the store all black. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, we're gonna paint it black. And you know that freaked him out. And you know, seeing us take like take all his furniture in the store and pretty much toss it in the trash because he was. He loved collecting everything. Like you keep, he hoard everything in that store, and we're like dumping everything. He's just like freaking out. We're talking to him about the, you know, our flavors we wanted to do. Like you know, I was like, I want a cookie butter from Trader Joe's and Vietnamese coffees because I grew up in this area and I drink a lot of boba, so I want a jasmine milk tea flavor. And he's like, I've never, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never had any of these things, but I'm just gonna do whatever you say. <laughs> and he he basically just said okay and. And agreed. Uh, yeah, like reluctantly, but he just had to do it just because he's like, you know, I'm already, I'm already balls deep with these guys. That, you know, you got, you might as well do. It. Might as well keep going until we open. And see what happens. What were some of the main marketing tactics going beyond just the product that you were taking from I Am Kings or, or streetwear that you you thought worked? Because it's one thing to have a great product and a great store, but then you also have to get people to talk about it, and you know tweet about it, things like that. What, what were some of the streetwear tactics that you were bringing over to afters? I think just understand, you know, you know, if you're in winter, you know, streetwear is the game of like building hype. Like everyone knows from culture to streetwear, like, you know, the lines that people generate, you know, for campouts. And, and that's kind of the same things that we brought over to the food industry because we, you know, we didn't see that at the time, except for a few places. But you know, we applied talking to special media, 
We made bright colors on our, our food. Our store had, you know, the funny quotes, like, you know, like we put Gucci man loves outers when he, you know, he, cause he had the ice cream tattoo on his face and he was in jail at the time. So he couldn't see you guys. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we made a store like photo op, you know, very photo op friendly, which is very early on in the game, what people weren't doing yet. But streetwear stores were already making photo op places in their stores. You know, we did a media night where we invited like, you know, all the, the tastemakers that, you know, from that are my, were my friends from the industry and invited them in. And, you know, because they were curious, like, wow, this guy, what, what is this guy doing opening an ice cream shop? And just all that together got, and, and also putting the ice cream in a donut just got piqued people's interest and, in, you know, something different. That's the same attitude of streetwear is just trying to be a little different. What separates you from everyone else? And applying those techniques over to food, you know, it, it, it wasn't being done at the time. Yeah, I think it's cool that you were thinking about how the actual ice cream looked against the backdrop of the store because I love, especially in clothing, I love the the colorful accents on dark clothing, like black or white and just having like the colors pop against it. And then when you go in and you're you're holding ice cream on a cone against a black backdrop, it looks really cool. Like it makes the actual product stands out. It's It's cool that you guys were thinking in that lane before a lot of people were thinking, you know, how can I make this look good on Instagram? Yeah, no, we're definitely thinking about aesthetics. And, and even that time frame, uh, the reason why we used a lot of blacks and whites were, you know, minimal, like the, the style of, of fashion at the time was very like minimalism. Everyone was wearing black or white, period, like wearing a mix of black and white. Like Virgil, uh, Virgil had his Pyrex line at the time and we were, Chanel was popping off and we we're kind of playing in the, that realm of, and scheme of things. So. You guys have done a, a lot of unconventional collabs that not many ice cream places or food places in general are doing. You have the Rick and Morty collab. You collabed with Kinjas, the dance group, which I watched the the video of on their YouTube channel and that looked insane. And then you've also done Hello Kitty and, and some other ones as well that y- you have merch and everything on the website. What do you look for when you are collabing with another brand or company. What about that company makes you want to get involved? I think there's a mix of a lot of different things that we, you know, we, we try to pair up with. We try to pair up with things that relate to us, nostalgic, what's relevant at the time. Does it, make, does it pair well with our brand? Can we execute it well? Can we do something that's a little different? I think there's so many elements that we look for in collaborations. And depends on the time frame that it's going on, where we're doing it at. I think that you know, there's so many different elements with it. You know, with Kinjas, like you know, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, was I, I really enjoyed you know, the dance community, and that was you know, I was a part of that. And I, you know, I, I wanted to bring that element over to what I was a part of, which was ice cream at the time. Same thing with you know, Hello Kitty. You know, we grew up with that as kids. Like everyone, that's one of the most famous brands in the world. Uh, Rick and Morty is like the most relevant thing, like the most popping cartoon right now. So, you know, we had to jump on that and figure out how to, how to tie into that and make it awesome. I like all the collabs. The Kinja's one, I think, is insane to me because it seems like it's the most far removed from the ice cream game. Take a bunch of guys and they're doing these insane dance moves and making viral videos. And then you say, all right, how can we pair this with ice cream and you guys completely looks like you revamped the store and the, the backdrop to reflect the collaboration you created an ice cream that was modeled after Kinja's and then they did a whole dance routine in the store and you know I've never seen anything like that I'm, I'm sure 
once that started to catch on, people start to copy the the aesthetic and and kind of the formula. Oh, they definitely did. <laughs> they definitely did. They tried. Yeah, everyone tried to. Uh, yeah, and and you know what? Even on the Kinja side, they didn't. You know, when we had the launch event for that flip for our collaboration, they didn't know. They didn't. They didn't know what to expect it because you know they've never done anything either. They've never done collaboration either. So, but they were coming out right off the teeth there. You know, being on TV and they were so talked about at the time, and then we were opening up our new store in a different territory and they thought they thought like 10 people were going to show up the next thing you know they had like thousands of people in line <laughs> that's nuts yeah so i'm sure it can get easy for other people to look in from the outside and say everything for andy has went smooth you know like he he started the real estate business for people that don't know a lot about your background he started the real estate business was it went into streetwear then he founded after his ice cream and now he's in you know 15 partnerships ventures and everything worked out for people that are not there on the ground with you and and going through the day-to-day is there a, a certain period or or standout kind of like a fuck up moment or anti home run moment where everything seemed like it was going wrong and you didn't see a way out at any sort of period like that or, or moment that stands out uh, it's hard to say moments because that stuff happens almost every day you go through more tougher times than you than, than you hit the highlights you know obviously you know people only get to see the highlights but most of the time we're going through, we're putting out fires like every single day. There's always something going wrong, whether it's, you know, like staff issues, lawsuits, partnership breakups, personality issues of, of, of uh, people that we hired or things breaking in the store or, you know, products not selling or, you know, like there's so many different things that happen every single day in, in moments that people don't see and things that we don't showcase uh, on through social media. But we get we we experience more, a lot more of that than we do the highs of like you know lines down the block or you know this one's killing it. But we've had projects you know I've had projects that don't work, I've had partnerships that don't work, and it's tough. You know you go through you know you go through so many different emotions and it's not yeah yeah I do own a lot of businesses but you know I go through fourteen times more headaches than everyone else does. It's because I'm dealing with so much more. But I'm you know I was willing to take that on. That's why you know that's why I get to enjoy doing what I get to do. But it's not easy. So say, for example, if, if you're in one of those periods where a partnership is breaking up or it's a particularly shitty day where you're, you're putting out much more fires than usual, how do you keep perspective? Or is there any sort of mindset or mantra that you kind of remind yourself or, or something that you look back to? It could be a routine or, or saying anything like that that helps you keep perspective for the bigger picture to kind of get to those high moments like you were talking about before. I always keep in mind that I'm able to be doing what I'm doing now and not very many people get to do what I get to do. I totally, I, I understand the space that I'm in and I know the impact that I have. And that, that's what it keeps me from, that keeps me driving to keep going. Even that seeing that little tiny speck of light at the end of the tunnel, I know that I can reach it and, and I'm, I'm a fighter within myself. So I, I know I can I reach those goals that I, I need to, I need to, that I attempt. This is something I was wondering about the past month or so. Do you think there are too many people these days who try to become entrepreneurs without knowing the the ramifications of 
creating an idea and and making money off of it. Because when you started all of this, when you when you first got into real estate, when you got into streetwear, entrepreneurship wasn't a cool thing. It wasn't like like there was no Instagram or, or Twitter, things like that at the time when you first started, where you could kind of share the the virality of entrepreneurship and like all the the flexing that goes with it. Do, do you think that it seems like there's kind of an unfounded wave of entrepreneurship these days where it's glorified, but then a lot of the downsides of being an entrepreneur are not reflected. So I think a lot of kids growing up see like, oh, okay, I want to I wanna do this, 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 and this. But then they don't actually think about the realities of what they'll have to do. You know, they, they, they get to see all the cool, pretty stuff, but they don't understand like, there's no really overnight success. And if it does, it doesn't last very long. You know, it, it disappears really quick. And they do a lot of them, you know, you see them doing it for the wrong reason. Like they're sitting on there flexing. Uh, and I think that's a lot different than the successful people that I'm around, the real successful people that have done it for a long time, that have longevity in the game. You can see that they are doing it for different reasons. They were, you know, money wasn't their top priority and what, what they started, what they were doing for. They they had, they were on a mission to do something. And I think those are the ones that, that last through the test of time. And seeing a lot of these younger entrepreneurs jump in the game, you don't see them last very long. You don't see them stick around very long because, like you mentioned, they don't understand. Like they don't understand it. They don't know what they're they're jumping into. They see the glory that people are jumping into, and they they hop on and they're like, "Well, this is a lot more difficult." It's it's a lot more difficult to 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 create an impact. You know, it's it's pretty easy. You can making money is easy. You can do a lot of things. You can sell you can sell drugs. You can you can hustle in the streets. You can figure out a bunch of different things to make money. But uh, trying to build building a company or building a brand that lasts through the test of time that's like the difficult part. How has fatherhood changed your perspective on business and how you balance your time and energy? Fatherhood has changed my perspective on the risks that I take. You know, before before I was willing to take, you know, I was willing to take a lot of risks, you know, like I'll willing to go head head in every single time and and not worry about what was going to happen just because I, I, I could always bounce back from it on my own. But knowing that I'm a father now, I have to minimize my risk. I've got to be a little, I got to be a lot smarter and use utilizing the experience that I have to make those better decisions for my family. Yeah. I, I don't know what that, that responsibility is like other than watching my own parents and, and seeing it from a, from a third party perspective. I'm at the age now where a lot of my friends are getting married and and some of them have kids already and I'm just, you know, single bopping around and I have completely, <laughs> completely different. Still figuring, still figuring it out. Yeah. Yeah. Still figuring it out. And so to, to go on the opposite spectrum of the risks of entrepreneurship and, and some of the things you can, should consider as the downsides, I think that not enough people take risks in their late teens, early twenties, when they have the least amount of responsibility in their life. It's, it kind of, it doesn't make sense when you think about it because when you graduate college, everyone is on, seems like they are trying to get on a track to where they can get promoted, get to a certain position, make more money on this defined track. And they are doing anything to try to keep that going and not willing to incur any setbacks for the most part. But then you're also in the point in your life where you have the least amount of responsibility you're ever going to have. You're probably like, you might be single. You probably don't have a kid. If you go broke, like you're, you know, it's, you got to take care of yourself. You don't have to, you don't have any mouths to feed. Like it's, it makes sense that you should be taking the most risk when you have the least amount of responsibility. 
yeah, especially if you're living at home, your parents, you better, you better, you better figure it out yourself. Yeah. yeah. Oh, the, living at home with my parents was one of the best decisions I've ever made. They, they didn't even want me to move out. They were excited that I was even considering moving home and I saved 80 to 85% of my paycheck because I was buying lunch and then my mom was making dinner and I wasn't paying rent. And I was like, all right, That's the I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save all this for two years and then I'm going to move out and have at least like a safety net where I, if I go through a period where I'm out of work or, or don't have any projects, at least I can kind of float myself for a little bit while I'm looking for the next thing. Yeah, that's the best time to take advantage of things and, and, and take all the risks you can, right? That, that's that right there is the best time. So Disney, I was listening that you, you've been to Disney a bunch of times and that your dream collab would be Disney. And I figured we were talking about kids. Disney is on topic for that. What was it about Disney that made you want to visit? Because I know it wasn't just all enjoyment time. You're kind of doing research and looking at the way that the company actually runs. You know, there's a time period where I was visiting Disney like every other day. Like we were going there with groups of friends where we would probably just hang out, get wasted, run around the parks, go on all the rides. And I was going through a, a time period at, at my club with Am King at the time where I was I was not happy. You know, I was super like in a depression depression mode. And you know, Disney was like a great outlet because you know that's the happiest place on earth, and it happens to be in the city that I, I grew up in. And all my friends, we all had season passes, so we kept going all the time. And that was a part, that was our escape, you know, it was like escape from being in the office and, and angry and unhappy at the time. And, you know, I, I just sat there and, and went on the rides and I'm studying, you know, this is how they build out sets. I'm like doing research and trying all the different restaurants and paying attention to the details of things and and reading more into Walt Disney. And, and you know, I grew up, you know, being a Mickey Mouse kid and, and, being there all the time, that just, you know, it's like, just made me happy. Just, you know, it just changes your attitude when you're there. You forget about what's going on. And that's why I kind of wanted to keep studying um, that Walt Disney brand. Yeah, it seems like Disney is the master at blocking out their real world and continuing, c- creating this continual experience where you even forget that you're in a theme park with people taking out the garbage and doing all these things behind the scene. You never even see that it's just a such a seamless experience so it makes sense that if for someone that's in your lane where you're trying to create experiences that you would look to disney yeah you know even you know once you're in line and once you once you get on the ride you forget about you forget about how long you waited in line for just because you're enjoying you're enjoying that moment you're, that you're escaping from those other moments you, you should uh if you haven't already you, you should read the book be our guest have you ever read that no, I haven't yet. It's I'll check it out. It's by someone who used to to work for Disney, and he basically lays out all the principles of how they they create the experience. And I pulled out a couple quotes from the book that I wrote down when I was reading it. One of them is, "You can't change people, but if you change the environment, the people will change. They'll change themselves." And then the other one is, "Don't build for yourself. Learn what people want, and then build it for them." And it seems like that's what you and Disney, at least in that aspect, have in common, even though the experiences are completely different. It seems like you've been able to figure out what people want and then present it to them where they think like they're the ones choosing it, but actually like, no, like we know our customers. Exactly. I have a few quick questions to wrap up. 
they're designed to be quick. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes they aren't. But yeah, so the first one is if you had to give a TED talk on any topic besides your job. So food, clothing, off the table. You can't pick a topic related to that. What would it be on? I'll probably do a TED talk on hip hop music or something. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I'd probably do hip hop like something in, in that realm. I done. I actually done a TED talk before and I bombed it. Have you really? Yeah, I did. I did a, I did a TEDx talk years years ago when I first opened afters, and I totally bombed it. Is it published? Is it online? I don't think so. I don't think it's published online. I'm glad they didn't publish it online. <laughs> what was that about? It was. Uh, I remember it was, it was a high school that one of the local high schools had me do it. And they brought me out to speak and share my story. Is it Valencia? Valencia High School? No, it was Fountain Valley High School. It's like right by the old after the first afters. And I remember, I know a TED Talk, you're supposed to range around like an 18 to 22 minutes. And I was like, that's seven minutes on the whole thing. I think what like shook me was like, I remember. I remember being like seeing the parents in the front row with their, their with their kids, and when I talked about getting kicked out of school, you could see their faces, and I'm like, "Oh man, you guys just totally threw me off my whole my whole vibe right now." TED talks seem intimidating. I don't I don't blame you. If I... I think I think I, I think at the time when I was doing it too, I was I was still trying to figure out my way and figure out my my flow of speaking and and being on stage. And now if I did it, I'd probably I'd probably have a lot more fun. But I think at that time, it just I just got shook. Yeah, I always. I think I'm comfortable talking to people because it's always it's usually one on one or one on two or three for a podcast. But I, uh, if I'm ever talking in front of a crowd, even if it's only you know ten or fifteen people, for whatever reason, it sort of flicks on the switch of anxiety where I'm just like, "You're gonna fuck this up! <laughs> like this is not gonna yeah, go no, well." Please. Even though I've talked to people all the time, so it's like that extra crowd element adds to it. Same here. You know, I I tell people you know I, I've only I spoke. I've done public speaking maybe for the last decade and I've done probably well over 300 talks now, but for the first like five, four or five years, I, I literally had to go up to the restroom and throw up every single time before I went up to speak. My anxiety would go in, in, like insane. I threw up before one of my interviews. It was the first time I ever did an interview at a record label. It was Atlantic Records with a singer named Jess Glenn. And oh, I'm very familiar with her. Yeah. So she is probably my biggest interview to date. And I started out in music, interviewing all music artists. And I remember, uh, I don't even think my older brother knows that I threw up, but he helps me out with the audio. And so I just told him, I was like, I'll be back in a sec. Went behind the building, pulled the trigger and then walked up and I was like, all right, I'm good to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm good now. <laughs> safe, safe. Yeah. So the next question is, what is your best purchase ever under one hundred dollars? Best purchase? I don't know. I purchased a lot of things under hundred dollars. Best purchase under hundred dollars? I don't know. I've, I found I probably found some crazy sneakers that I've I've kept that the value went increase. I can't figure out what shoe right now. Probably one of my pair of Jordans that I have, like Jordan fours or something. It's a good choice. It's a good choice. If you could make someone disappear and you could take their place right now, who would it be? If you had to choose someone be in someone's position right now and, and see from their eyes. Yeah. I don't know, maybe something quirky like Pharrell and see what he does every day and see how he sees he sees colors when he when he when he when he hears listens to music and that'll be something fun to be in for like a day. Synesthesia, right? That's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I actually good. spoke to a singer named Chloe Lilac that says she has synesthesia and 
I know Billie Eilish has it too. And she created this whole album experience, like the Billie Eilish experience. But it sounds, it sounds pretty wild, especially since I have no idea what that feels like to see numbers and colors and, and things like that. Exactly. I see, I get feelings to it, but I don't, you know, I was like, colors. I was like, what? You know, that was always fascinating when he said that. I was like, always fascinated by that. Yeah. When I was talking to Chloe, she would say, when I hear this song or when I hear this note, I see the color yellow or I see the color red or something like that. Or I think of seven. And I was just like, damn, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I just want to, as we wrap up, thank you for your time again. I really do appreciate it. And I hope that you are getting enough sleep running 15, <laughs> 15 different things at once and having kids in the house now and, and everything going on. And if, if I'm ever out towards LA or Orange County, I would definitely love to meet up, grab a drink or something if you have time. And Absolutely. You're always welcome. So yeah, I got you. And I definitely want to come visit afters or any any of the yeah, no. any of the places that you're running right now out in Southern California. No, we're definitely going to make that happen when you're out here. Thank you for listening to this wide-ranging conversation with Andy Newen. The best way to follow Andy is to hit up his Instagram at AndyTheNewen. Link is also in the description of this podcast. In his bio, you will find all of his ventures and I highly recommend going to check out the homepage for Afters Ice Cream, which is aftersicecream.com. They have a bunch of cool collabs, dope flavors, and locations all across the SoCal area. Go hit them up if you're out there. I'll definitely be stopping by next time I'm in town. And if you could please take 15 seconds to subscribe, rate, and comment on this podcast in the iTunes store, it helps more listeners like you find out about us. We are a completely independent platform and we rely on people like you to help spread the word. Thank you for inspiring us to keep doing what we love to do, which is to bring the biggest and best conversations to you. Until next time.